Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome to the Investor's Outlook podcast. Today, we have a very special guest. It is a fellow realtor, and we're going to be talking real estate today. I am super excited. The market has changed, and everything's going, you know, as anticipated, considering we're going through that correction. And we're going to talk about real estate. We're going to get into the details. We're going to talk about Daniel's story. My guest is Daniel Foch. Daniel, welcome hey. to the show. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure, man. This is what an exciting Monday, right? Yeah. What, what can I say? You know what I mean? Like this is, uh, you know, every day is a good day for real estate. Yeah. So I want to start off by, why don't you tell us your story of who you are, yeah. what you do and uh, why you do it? Yeah. So my name is Daniel Foch. I'm a real estate broker, um, host of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. I, um, been in the business pretty well my whole life, but I, I actually started a, a digital marketing business in, in, uh, and a high school university for realtors. So I, my primary clientele, and that's kind of like why I, I do things the way that I do on social media. My primary clientele was, was making social media pages for realtors back in the day. I sold that business uh, second year university, and then I, I pursued my real estate license. I came from a family in the real estate space. Um, I've been investing since around that time. And uh, I mean, I think I'm, I'm relatively well known in, in the space as being a little bit more bearish than the average realtor. Like I'm not uh, I'm not that kind of kind of individual who says, you know, it's always a good time to buy or uh, or the market's going to go up indefinitely. And and so if you've if you've heard of me lately, it's because I've had some um, some of my calls have been been correct in in the market uh, coming down a little bit since February. Yeah, well, that's irony, right? I mean, like like when I got into the business, yeah. Um, the message I got is it's always a good time to be in real estate or right. it's a good time to be in real estate. Yeah. Market went up. It's a good time to be in real estate. Market crashes. It's a good time to be in real estate. Yeah. So it got me wondering, is there ever a bad time to be in real estate? Right. Right. So it's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But yeah, you're right. It is that constantly that kind of uh, message. So and obviously now everyone can see that there's been a little bit of a change. Yeah. And I think that it's worth like, you know, for the most part, I don't think that the average person should necessarily worry so much about market timing. Like, I think it's a it's a really challenging exercise for even the smartest of people to do. Right. I mean, you know, to quote whoever says it in the stock market space, it's it's not timing the market, it's time in the market. Right. And real estate, for the most part, should be a yielding asset. So, time in the market is an important part. Like, you know, the more exposure that you have to the asset, the more rent that you're earning, the better off the investment is over time. The challenge is that in Canada, we've become speculators, right? We're not necessarily investors for the most part. Yeah. And so when you're speculating in real estate, timing does matter because you're the, the money, the income that you're making, the yield that you're making from the asset depends primarily on when you enter it and when you're exiting it. And so I think the biggest thing that I'm watching for right now in, in the real estate space is, are we going to see a secular shift away from speculation and more into investment? And it seems that way just based on the audience that I've been able to gain in the past couple of months. Um, people seem to, they still want exposure to real estate, but they want to do it. They're watching a lot of people get hurt in the industry right now and they want to stop or they, they want to make sure that they're not you know, next in line to, to kind of, you know, experience that, right. that pain that comes from correction. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I agree with you on that. But that's the thing, right? Like, this is the moment and this is the opportunity with everything that's happening to get into the market. Now, I realize that interest rates can be something 
that can scare people. But the thing I'm going to say about it is that with interest rates now, what you could do is get into the market now. Your approvals are going to be a little bit lower, but you're also going to buy a little bit lower. And then, you know, within a five-year period, when you're going to renew, there might be an opportunity to drop the interest rate over time because, you know, well, you have gone through the rough spot and then you can get the new rate. I mean, what are your thoughts? I think that... I, I would encourage, I typically encourage investors to focus on things that they can control. Um, and interest rates are something that we can't really control, right? Like we have zero control over what the federal reserve in the United States is going to do. We have zero control over what the bank of Canada is going to do here. Um, we can't control what the economy is going to do. We can't control what inflation is going to do. So what, what can we control? Well, we can control number one, the price that we pay for an asset. And number two, the income that that asset produces. Those are probably the two primary things that are within the scope of things that we can control. So don't like I would analyze what's a worst case scenario look like in in the scope of, of things that you can't control. So what's the worst case scenario look like right now? Inflation doesn't get under control. Rates have to go up to 10 percent. Uh, the economy is absolutely decimated in Canada and um you know, you're you're more worried about food and and ammunition than you are about uh, you know about interest rates. Is that going to happen? I, I don't think it's necessarily a, a likely outcome. Um, I don't think it would matter if it was. The last thing you're going to be thinking about is investing in real estate at that point in time. So, okay, we've looked at the worst case scenario. We all want to know what the best case scenario is. We've lived in the best case scenario for the past ten years, maybe twenty years. You know, real estate always goes up. Interest rates always go down. Those those things are behind us. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle. So if you can buy an investment that you'd be happy still holding, if rates went up, if you had to renew at seven percent, like if if you're wrong, right? If you're saying yeah, if your guess is 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 wrong, if you can find an investment today that still makes sense, if if you're not renewing at a better interest rate, then you've made a good investment. Absolutely, hundred percent agree with you on that. Like, like I said, I'm just—I was just giving an example. No, for right? sure. Yeah. At the end of the day, you never want to overpurchase, regardless of the market. Like you always prepare for the worst. As in, what you're buying today—if you're buying something today at six percent, you've already deemed that you can afford the six percent. But should something change, an opportunity may exist. And if it doesn't change, you're at your worst case scenario. Right. Right. So that—that's the way, uh, way I was looking at it. For sure. Uh, look, the, the way I would, I, I think the easier way to to think about it in regards to rates is like, it's a lot easier to buy well on the way down than it is on the way up. As as prices come down, and this is the same with stocks, as, as the value of things comes down or the price of things comes down, you're closer to the bottom. And so there's less downside risk. Let's say like, you know, your your price is here. Any Anything above that is upside potential, let's call that. Anything below that is downside potential. As, as the price goes down, you get closer to reaching the bottom of that downside potential. So there's less risk below you and there's more upside above you. So as prices go down, there's uh, you're, you're buying in a lower risk scenario. It becomes easier to get a good deal. So I'm certainly encouraging people to be looking actively right now. I don't think that the best deals have, have passed us by yet, but I think that they no. will likely, we'll likely see them within the next 24 months. And it's not to say like, I, I would probably say that on average, prices will bottom. If you just look at the history of Canadian real estate, you know, 81 to 83 or 84 was like a three-year correction, right? And a three-year recovery. 
89 to 94 was like a five-year correction and a five-year recovery. It took till 2002 for prices to get back. So 12 years actually from peak back to peak. Um, if we end up with either, again, let's say those are the worst case scenarios. If we end up with either of those scenarios, then, you know, your bottom will be 2024, 2025. That doesn't mean that you can't find good investments between today and 2024, right? Or 2025. You don't need to be buying on the bottom. It's actually very tough to be buying on the bottom. What, what will likely happen is, you know, there'll be a period of time when values are pushed down, they're compressed, and then rates of return or cap rates are much higher. You start to see cap rate expansion during the, these you know, recessionary periods. And interest rates are now coming down to try and push up, push us in a or push us out of a recession. I mean, if, if somebody's able to time that period, um, that would be perfect. I, it, the challenge is again, it goes back to what we we're just discussing. Timing the market is exceptionally difficult. So I think that as long as you're sort of like, as long as you're not buying at the top, you're really not. And I think the top's clearly behind yeah. us. Right. So you don't need to worry so much about the, the peak downside risk. I would, I would, I would be encouraging people to to start looking now for sure. Yeah, I agree with you, and that and that's the thing, right? Real estate has always been a long term investment. Yeah. And at the end of the day, if you're buying for investment properties, you're buying for rentals. Yeah. I mean, that's your objective. And as long as you keep collecting rent. Yeah. And I mean, for me personally, I look for cash flow properties. Right. Right. I mean, and everyone has a different opinion on that. Yeah. Right. Like some people say, Hey, as long as, you know, even if you're losing a couple of hundred bucks, yeah. that's okay. Because, you know, appreciation over time is still going to outweigh that. Some people, you know, as long as I'm not putting in, even if I'm not cashing it, everyone has a different level of comfort. Yeah. I personally believe into the cash flowing properties, yeah. which also basically means that it's going to take me out of the downtown Toronto area mm -hmm. because even now with today's correction, there's not going to be any cash flowing properties. Yeah. So I think like I'm starting to see Toronto properties come in at like a four and a half cap on like multi large multifamily, not large, but like mid-sized multifamily, which is crazy. Cause like, you know, in February we were transacting in the three and a half cap rate, right. Yeah. Um, in, in Toronto at least, um, you know, it's interesting. Cause like, I don't know if there is necessarily actually a debate between cash flow and capital appreciation. I think appreciation is where you make uh, the big sums of money, like large liquidity events. So you're not getting it paid out over time, but cash flowing properties appreciate in value too. Right. So if you, you know what I mean? Like if you're making a property, um, that was a four and a half cap in today's market. And if the cap rate stays the exact same, you know, we, we don't see compression as a result of, you know, interest rates going down for the past, several years like we saw cap rate compression basically since 95 um but if you do see cap rate compression prices go up if you but the other piece is your your or your uh, rental rates go up in that period of time so your income climbs so your value of your asset climbs yeah, that's so true, true. yeah so so all properties the rising tide lifts all boats right all properties should be brought up by a good market cash flowing properties included so if you're buying just for capital appreciation, you're really buying, you're, you're a trade trader, let's yeah. call it, you're a stock trader kind of, but with real estate. If you're buying for cash flow, the difference, the big distinction is if you're not losing money, like if you're not, if, if people are like, you know, use the example of if I'm losing 500 bucks a month or whatever, you got to think about scale. Scale is buying the first asset to while thinking about what how this how that's going to look for the second one. 
And if you're buying asset number one and it's losing you money, then you pretty much made it, you, you just made it significantly more difficult for you to qualify for a mortgage to purchase asset number two. So the reason I coach investors to focus on cash flow first is because it's within that scope of things that you can change, right? We can't change the interest rate. We can't change the future price of an asset that we're hoping to buy. What we can change today on the invest on the asset that we're doing is our income. So if if I buy an asset that's cash flowing, now all of a sudden, if I'm getting um, if I'm adding all of that income from that cash flowing asset to my uh, to my income, then my income goes up. It means that I can qualify for a higher mortgage for the next time that I go purchase. And each time I purchase a cash flowing asset, my income climbs, and that makes me a better business case for a lender to want to lend me more money to buy more assets. So to me, the, the, the question is people who want to trade real estate, who want to like flip properties, make capital appreciation, that's fine. But there's really only a lot of money to be made doing that one or two deals at a time. It's not how you get to scale. It's not how you build portfolio, which is from my perspective, generational wealth and long-term wealth. Yeah, for sure. Now, even going, you know, along those premises here, see what I want to, what I want, where I want to go there, right? Is a lot of times people go out there and they buy their, their uh, single family home, you know, they want the white picket fence and, uh, you know, they're going to live in it and all that. And they call that an investment, which I call bull crap because you got to live in there. That's an expense, not an, uh, not an investment. You have to live there and you're constantly paying money to live there. So it's almost like you're paying a rent, but you get an appreciation cash out at a later date. But if you buy high, you sell high, you sell low, buy low, you sell low kind of, it's like they kind of go hand in hand. So where I'm going with this, I mean, do you have the same perspective I do? And how would you tell a person to begin their investment journey? Like what would the route be? Somebody has got a down payment. Would you suggest that they buy the home that they live in first, or would you tell them to go and get their investment property and buy later? I think that varies depending on the market geographically, but also like, um, macro like um in 2017 i um made first made the decision to move out of a uh, primary residence that i owned and rent um and the reason was because i quite simply couldn't there was no way that i could possibly afford based on what prices were doing there was no way that i could possibly afford a house that i was happy with uh as a purchase now prices are coming down i mean they're still not maybe 2017 levels, but they're, they're coming down. So if it, if it makes sense for somebody, um, and there's a lot of qualitative benefits that you can't really put on paper, right? Like I, I'm, I'm a very analytical guy and I like thinking about things quantitatively. So the numbers, but qualitatively the emotion of things, um, you have to try and put a valuation on that. Right. So it's like, is it worth, is the peace of mind of living with your family worth 40, 50, a hundred thousand dollars? I don't know. Um, what I will say is the, the, the sooner that you realize that your primary residence isn't an investment, that it is, it's access to real estate as an asset class, it's access to leverage, which is great. It gives you really good leverage for a lot of people. If you're buying 5% down, you're getting 20x leverage basically, right? Where are you going to get that? Like no, nowhere. you can't trade stocks with 20x leverage. You can't even trade stocks with 5x leverage, right? Um, the... It, I think it's a savings vehicle for most Canadians and Canadians are, are not exceptionally good at saving money. And so 
there's a huge advantage in that respect. It's this obligation to pay your mortgage. And most people don't really save that much money outside of paying their mortgage. Um, so I think it, it, it checks a lot of boxes for the average Canadian, the needs that the average Canadian has in their financial life. Being a investment isn't really one of those. And that's fine. It's okay. We just need to not call it that. Like people are worried about the financialization of housing. It's not investors who are financializing housing investors for most in, for, for the most part need to buy multiplex properties to cash flow mm-hmm. right and it's it's end users who are relying on their home to be their retirement to and or to be a ladder um, a vehicle to help them climb the housing ladder that is actually financializing housing and that i, I mean it's just like it's an important distinction from my perspective because I think most homeowners now have a speculative nature to them and they think it's an investment, but that's really not investing. It's, it's like, like you mentioned, like it's a liability. Owning a home is a liability. It's something, it's a debt that you have to pay every month. And in in 2017, just to return to that example, and then I'll wrap up here. I could have owned, or sorry, I I was paying less rent than the owner of that property was paying in, in, in interest on their mortgage alone. Right. So every time the interest rates go up, the sunk cost of owning a home increases. So it becomes more compelling to rent. And that's why you're seeing this flood of people entering the rental economy, because it's not every time interest rates go up, it becomes a less and less of a good business decision to, to purchase your primary residence. And we're going to get to a point maybe where it's so expensive to own a home on an interest rate basis that more and more people will rent because it is the financially better decision. There's other sunk costs, taxes, maintenance, insurance that you got to consider. Like you have to be a pretty bad investor to not beat the stock market in uh, with, with the amount of, or sorry, you have to be a pretty bad investor to not beat um, the real estate market in with, with the, the money that you would have spent on a home. But the thing is, most people are that bad of an investor. So the house is a good idea for them. You got a point there, right? That is true, right? Like, because if you're impatient and it's got you on edge, then really it's not for you. Yeah. Um, maybe not at least, uh, you know, investing everything you have into it. Maybe it's like, again, every investment comes with the fact that you have to invest what you're willing to lose or hold on to. Right. What I like about real estate is that. There is no sum zero. Um, you may not get what you want out of it, but there is no sum zero. And what I mean by that, with when you get into a real estate investment deal, like even if the property is a piece of crap and it's falling apart and it's falling down and nobody will pay you anything for it, you have a piece of land that's always there, that's always worth something. It's still a loss at the worst case scenario, but it's not a 100% loss where a stock market or crypto can go to zero. And that's my only view of it. And that's what I do like about real estate. But I think there's many options in terms of real estate investing that you have out there. It doesn't have to be buying single family homes or uh, buying multi-residential. I think, you know, with you can go out there and get into what we call joint ventures. What are your thoughts on the joint ventures out there? I, uh, I, I typically encourage people to co-invest, to be honest. I think that a lot of people, one of the big problems that we're dealing with as a society right now is that people think that real estate investing is easy and they think that being a landlord is easy and it's not at all. Um, I don't own a single property on my own. And the reason for that is because to be a good landlord, you need at least two people to be able to answer phone calls because it's, it is 
and we have a full-time property manager with that with that group of investors that I work with. But you need multiple people there to be ready to solve problems for your own stress, like you know, to so that you're not having to run around and because it's like during COVID, I was a full-time like property manager. To be honest with you, like there was periods of time where I was driving to to properties. 80% of my day, right? Like 80% of my work day, driving to properties, fixing small problems because you couldn't get trades to solve problems quickly enough. And so you had to just basically create that base level of knowledge to solve problems quickly and to, to do it, to go to the, the, the homes and, and to do the work because trades were two, three days out minimum, weeks out in some cases. Um, and that's not sustainable. Like what the life that I was living you can't do that. And, and so after that, once we finally kind of got through the weeds of that, I, you know, spoke to the individuals that I invest with and I was like, we need to figure out a way to scale this properly so that that doesn't happen again in an absolute, even in a worst case scenario, if we end up in a place where you can't get trades or whatever it is. So I think joint venture investing, co-investing, whatever you call it is an exceptionally good idea. Um, because simply because like and, and there's many other reasons why it's good you can defer the risk you can qualify for more you can scale better you, you know but the big thing for me is just from a management intensiveness perspective being a landlord is a lot of work a lot of people don't realize that or they 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 make it not a lot of work by being absentee landlords or whatever that's a problem <laughs> and and i think that you know you need to to do that right and the way to do that is to have multiple landlords on one property and i you know you can see that existing at scale in, in the Canadian market right now where we have huge backlogs in the landlord and tenant board system. And don't get me wrong, there's a lot of problems that are in that that are caused by tenants, but just as many are caused by landlords who aren't fulfilling their duties to their tenants. And so I mean that's you know one of the easy ways to fix that problem is to be a better landlord and to be a better landlord sometimes it takes two, right? Well, here, this is what I want to get into, right? And this is where I'm going with it. And I'm glad you said that because a lot of times people typically think of landlords as the slumlord, right? Where you go out there, you buy a place and you just let the place rot and keep collecting money and you're building riches. And that's the typical image people have. Where the reality is that the landlord is typically, and not everybody, there's, there's out there guys that are out there that with billions of dollars and whatever that te technically have unlimited funds or whatever, right? But let's look at the average person. The average person is just like the everyday worker that uh, decided they weren't going to invest in the stock market or put very little into the stock market. And they use that money as a down payment and they joined up with other people. So it's a couple of people investing their life savings into this and everything they have is into that investment. Now, the, the problem that I found with this is that sometimes people look at, at uh, landlords, uh, like, sorry, tenants as pests. And the issue with that is the fact that your people react to the way you treat them. Right. So now if you're looking at them as they're your pests and they feel like a pest and they feel not uncared for, they're going to treat your place like they don't care. Right. And that's what it comes down to. Where you know, and I, and I came across this. I asked somebody who had a business who was an investor and I asked, hey, you know what? You have a, you have a store, you have a retail store and a customer comes in. Are you going to look at them and uh, talk to them like they're a pest? The answer was no. Right. Right. And I said, well, why not? Well, I can't do that. I mean, that's the business. I, that's my business. And that's where they have to realize when you're a landlord, your tenants are your clients. They're the ones that you're serving. So if you wouldn't 
treat somebody like a pest in your retail store, you can't treat them like a pest as a tenant, right? They're your clients. And if you, if you elevate your service and you treat them properly and you, they, they see that you care about them and the property and you care about what's going on in the property, they might actually go out there and tell you when there's a problem before it becomes doomsday. So you won't have this big expense. But if they see you don't care, what's in it for them to tell you? For sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, the example that you use is, is a great one. Like, the reality is, as a landlord, we're business people, we're running a business. And that business is a relationship business. It's just like any, it's just like sell, sales, like us selling real estate, you have to build, you have clients, customers who you provide a service to, and that service is housing, you're literally providing them a place to live. And in order to do that, you need a channel, a relationship channel to connect with them. And if you break that, then it makes the business relationship and the service uh, environment a, a bad one. And and so most of these things can be mitigated with things like respect. I mean, obviously, look, there are there are anomalies where and and there's you know there's bad examples and human nature does include for a lot of shitty things, but. Um, for the most part, I think that as long as you're focusing on running a good quality relationship, building good, building good relationships with your tenants, treating them as equals, being respectful, then in that case, for the most part, I think you're going to have a better experience as a landlord, and you're going to have better, you know, better yields as as an investor. Um, you know, a lot of the things that you're describing, like the uh, the pest uh example was uh, it's projection right like if you're and these are just like simple things that if you you know as long as you have a degree of self-awareness there it's not hard to to get a grasp for but it seems like for some reason it's so hard for that you know for the odd person to understand but you know if you're if you're assuming that people are out to get you or if you're assuming that your tenants are gonna try and screw you over or not pay rent or whatever then you're projecting that negative energy upon them in your behavior and as soon as you you start doing that, then you you open the door to kind of break down the relationship. You have to imagine, again, like a business situation, you have to lead people as well, right? And and you can do that by having the right attitude and and trying to and being almost unshakable as an individual, where you have this this unwavering. Don't want to say like a you know raw raw positivity, but you have to have you know the 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 right mentality. Uh, to you know to instill that right mentality in anybody that you work with not just tenants but you know anybody that you work with but tenants being the example in this scenario absolutely now with that being said going into the uh real estate business i mean how long have you been in the business and my question is that what areas do you serve right now yeah so i've been in the business i think i've been licensed for like eight years um, but i actually worked as an admin in university uh, for Royal Page Brokerage in Guelph, uh, basically full time uh, for three years, four years. So I've been in, you know, like actively in in the real estate sales profession for for just shy of ten years. And then I was doing social media consulting and, and basically running a digital digital agency for realtors for five years prior to that. So let's say fifteen years. I've been like pretty active in in real estate sales. Um, where I sell right now, I mean, I'm in the GTA, um, but I would say, I, I, like, I, I, the asset type is is a little bit more. It's more multifamily, mixed use, um, like infill stuff, stuff that's sort of like too big for 
you know, the average realtor that you and I know and, and brush shoulders with on a regular basis, but too small for sort of like your CBREs or Colliers. Yeah. Um, there's kind of like a mid market there that's really been underserved over the past five, 10 years, really, as values kind of went like all of those big six commercial brokers sort of really started representing more institutional clientele and didn't care so much about sort of the lower end of the market. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm like everybody, you know, we're in the most um, realtor dense uh, city in the world, right? There's like, I think half of the realtors in Canada are in Ontario. Um, but so I sell in, in the greater Toronto area, but I, I sell primarily, um, m- you know, multifamily or mixed use investments and, and infill development opportunities. I mean, especially now that what we just saw happen from the policy environment, uh, I, you know, a lot of infill development opportunity. Yeah, which is very interesting there, yeah. right? Now, it, that, what, what really gets to me, like, and, and piques my interest is, um, like, most people get into the business. What they want to do is immediately, I want to sell single-family homes. I want to sell homes for a million dollars or more. You know what I mean? And, I, and it's just basically homes that I like. Um, and pretty much what you said, we're in an influx of realtors. So they're all selling the same thing or trying to sell the same thing. How did you get into the multi-res? Like, what was the inspiration there? Like, did you get into the business knowing that's what you wanted to do? Or was it something that uh, you just sort of got led into? I I did actually, this is what I wanted to do from the start. It did take a really long time. And to be honest with you, um, until about February of this year, I almost thought I was like off that path because my investor clients weren't buying anything. And I was representing primarily buyers in the multifamily space for the past um, three, four years, um, helping people, you know, acquire portfolios, build portfolios, and then all of a sudden, my those, you know, everybody who I knew who was holding portfolios during COVID started selling, and maybe it's like the type of person that I am and the clientele that I attract, but but I felt that like there was a lot of bearishness among the investment community. People were like this is crazy. Prices are never going to get this high. Fundamentals are completely detached. And for some, some of them were too early, whatever, but a lot, and a lot of them were getting scared of the, um, landlord and tenant board taking money and going to the States to more landlord friendly areas. Um, but I got into it by, by cold calling, to be honest with you, I just started really gearing my content towards investors. But for the past couple of years, my content was really focused on on end users. Um, and the reason was because that's the bigger group of people, right? That's consu- that's the that's the broad consumer. And so the, the way to build an audience really well is to serve the bigger audience and then start gradually niching it. At least that's what's worked for me. So but but the investment community, they want to be for the most part, they want they want to be spoken to directly. And so I was, I've been cold calling, like I used to work for CBRE. So that's where I picked up a lot of these techniques, but I've been, I've been cold calling in the real estate space for since I started. Right. Um, and that's where I met like most people I would, I would, if I had a buyer rather than we would look at everything, we'd sit in the office and we'd look at everything that was available on MLS and be like, okay, all, these are all shit. Like the prices suck. Everything's overpriced, whatever. It's like, okay, well there's this property. Like there's one right next door. Maybe I can, I'll just call that owner, right? There's an identical fourplex right next door. Why don't we call them? And so I started realizing that that was like good systematization was representing buyers on off-market transactions. And and so I started cold calling and I started doing deals of that nature. And then that's where I started to build the book, all of these 
multifamily owners knew who I was, right? Because they, I've called them and, you know, I've called like probably 80% of multifamily owners in the GTA and told them that I have a buyer and cause I did. And then, you know, what, what do they think when they're going to sell? Oh, I'm going to call that. I'm going to call back that guy who, who called me a couple of yeah, years ago yeah. at a buyer. Right. So, yeah. Well, that's awesome. Right. Like, I mean, it, it, cause it's unique, right. It's, it's different than what the normal person would go for. Like even when I got in, I was one of those guys. That I'm gonna, I want that million dollar home. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I want to, you know, like the same thing. And to be honest, that's kind of what led me to a very slow start. Right. Right. I mean, I ended up having a different niche than most people. Like my niche ended up coming around uh, just before COVID started, like my real niche. And that was agent to agent referral that ended up being like 75% of my business. Right. And, um, you know, which is kind of uh, unique. And I fell into that. What ended up happening is somebody, actually a friend called me and said, hey, um, I don't go past a certain point, but I know you're out in that area. Would you, uh, I, I got somebody's looking for somewhere in uh, Grimsby or Niagara. Right. Uh, you know, would you, are you interested in that? I Obviously, yeah. So that's how it started. So that was just luck that I ended up in that. That mm-hmm. was just one transaction. Then I let that go, thought nothing of it. And then from that point in time, you know, time went by. And then from that, when time went by, I got a call from the same person said, Hey, I have someone else going to Hamilton. You interested yeah. in that? And then next thing you know, that was two. And then that's when I, got, I built up a coach, right? I got a coach. And from that point in time, we started building up strategy. We started trying different things and building different things. And, you know, and everything comes with tribulations and, you know, mm-hmm. like, uh, but what seemed to be natural is every time I talked to other agents, I kept getting these referrals. So yeah. then I thought, why not build up using that? Why not? Instead of ignoring, like, if that's what's coming to me naturally. Yeah. Why not build up? And that's how I got it. Right now, clearly, we're in 2022. Things have slowed down a bit. Things yeah. have changed a bit. Um, I can almost guarantee those agent and agent referrals are going to almost drop off because yeah. people are going to start doing what they wouldn't do before because right. of that. Right, yeah, making so, the drive out to Hamilton. Right. Yeah. They, exactly. Yeah, and that's yeah, the thing. So sure. that, it is what it is. Right. Yeah. And, and obviously, so my strategy for 2023 has changed. Yeah. So, which is awesome, man. Like, um, so. Before we end it off, I got like two questions for you and then yeah. I get into what I call the lightning round. Okay, cool. And uh, one question is, how do you know you've had a successful day? Uh, if I can fall asleep at night, <laughs> honestly, I, if I, if I uh, haven't, if I've left things undone, then I have a very hard time sleeping. So I, uh, yeah, usually if I'm tired at the end of the day, it's usually the easy way for me to tell. Yeah. That's awesome. And last but not least before the lightning round is how do people find you? Uh, just Google me. My last name is is relatively unique. Uh, so Daniel Foch, F-O-C-H on I'm it's just Daniel Foch at, um, on TikTok and Instagram, but there's Daniel underscore Foch on Twitter. But if you just Google me, typically it'll bring up the platform that people are most likely to click on. So that's probably the easiest way I would recommend. Yeah. Fantastic. So First question of the lightning round is going to be food related. Okay. Which is what is your favorite food and why? Um, hmm. Probably uh, my, my order from the keg, to be honest with you, is uh, just a, a baseball steak cooked blue uh, with uh, double veggies, n- no carbs. I don't, just could go and eat that every meal of my I would probably wouldn't live very long, but I could eat that every meal of my, <laughs> every meal of my life. Uh, why, why do I like that? Because uh, it's simple and they, they, do it right every time. Yeah. Love that. Love that. Like, yeah, I'm a keg fan myself. Yeah. Um, favorite vacation spot. Uh, there's a little town just outside of DeVos in, uh, in Switzerland called Schmitten. Uh, my dad's side of the family 
grew up there and uh my my parents have a chalet there and that would that would be the spot it looks like a, a fairy tale village to be honest with you yeah oh interesting how many yeah. times have you gone there i've probably been there 10 times yeah awesome yeah favorite podcast um hmm it's a tough one i think maybe sam harris's podcast i don't do you know sam harris he's mm-hmm. a he's a meditation guy um well he's like a I think he's a neuro neuroscientist or neurologist and meditation guy, but he also has like some interesting, very un, uh, very uh, balanced commentary on current events. Yeah, awesome. Favorite book? Uh, probably the Fourth Turning. Have you read that? I haven't read it, really, but I heard really about it. Book. Yeah, that or uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. But uh, but I think the Fourth Turning is just like r- riveting, riveting book to read right now. Um, like actually gave me the chills when they they in chapter six they go through like a list of things that would happen sort of at the end of a four of the fourth turning and like 80 percent of them have happened in the past like couple of years right yeah that's kind of freaky and it was written in like 94 yeah they was like uh russia ukraine uh global pandemic like all of these different things super weird anyway wow yeah, yeah. that that is incredible last but not least is gonna be if you were giving unlimited amount of money and you had 48 hours to spend it. You could do whatever you want, however you want it. But the catch is after 48 hours, what you didn't spend, you lose. What would you do? Um, I would hire somebody to go and door knock uh, and start overpaying for properties in uh, fringe cities in Canada and just buy... I, and maybe maybe in the states too. I'd probably be doing it in the states, but I would basically just be door knock. I'd pay somebody to door knock uh, ten cap municipalities anywhere in in North America, and I would just start buying every single one of those that I possibly could. Uh, yeah, that, I think that's it. So probably like Cornwall, Saskatoon, Kirkland Lake, um, you know, some places in Texas, in the Midwest, in Florida, whatever. Anywhere you can get a ten around a ten cap, I would just go buy that but i would have to find the infrastructure to do it right so i'd have to find some local kids to like go knock on all those doors and try and buy those things so that's i'd spend the money there and buying houses awesome that is amazing daniel thank you for being on the show man my pleasure thanks for having me it's been an absolute pleasure if you like what you see and you want to see some more subscribe to the link below